In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I know some of you are nervous right now because you think I'm going to be preaching from the Corinthians passage about holy kissing and all that stuff. But I'm not. I'm going to be preaching from Matthew's Gospel. And I'd love to begin this sermon today exploring the cultural phenomenon known as the mic drop. Perhaps you've heard the phrase mic drop before. Perhaps you've heard it in a show or perhaps you've seen it used or used it yourself in a hashtag. The mic drop originates out of hip-hop culture. And I assume, just by looking around at you, Advent, that we're a congregation very familiar with hip-hop culture. I'm glad you laughed. Uh, I'm a big fan of hip-hop music myself. And the mic drop originates from something that's really at the core of what makes hip-hop culture great. It's called the rap battle. And in a rap battle, you'll have a stage and a crowd and two rappers. There's a beat that's established, some kind of rhythm that they're rapping to, and they will battle. They will go back and forth. They both are holding a mic, and they're both rapping improvised lines that they haven't used before. They kind of kind of point to the other rapper, the rapper raps a little bit, and the whole idea of the rap battle is that each rapper uh, tries to one-up the last thing that they did, and it kind of climaxes in the moments when everybody knows who won, and usually it's because the rapper has delivered some glorious and perfect rhyme that the crowd knows, the rapper knows, and the opponent knows. They can't top that. And usually at that moment, the rapper will hold the mic sideways and drop it. That mic drop is to indicate game over, all done, the crowd cheers, and this has been established that this rapper is superior, the battle is done. And today is Trinity Sunday, and we can rightly view this moment in history as Jesus, as weird as this sounds, Trinitarian mic drop with the rap battle with his enemy. I mean, there's nothing more definitive No more clear statement from our Lord about his utter defeat of his enemy than this. All authority has been given unto me. All authority under heaven and earth. All authority. Not some authority. Not most authority. All authority. And Jesus says, because I rule and I reign, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mic drop. You know, if you've grown up in the church in certain traditions of Christianity, chances are that you're familiar with this passage called the Great Commission. Jesus commissions his hearers to go and make disciples. Just what is a disciple, though? The classic definition, the great and biblical one, is a follower of Christ. I want to put a finer point on it, though, gathering in the fullness of the biblical witness. And we can say that a disciple is a hearer of Christ, and particularly a hearer of Christ's teaching and promises. A hearer is someone who truly listens to Christ. You know, it's like when a wife says to her husband or a girlfriend says to the boyfriend, you're listening to me, but you're not really hearing me. A disciple is someone who really hears Jesus and particularly hears his promises. This is a fitting definition 
given the context. Because in the Great Commission, Jesus is giving a proclamation, make disciples, punctuated by a promise. I am with you always. Furthermore, saying that a disciple is a hearer of Christ's teaching and promises is precisely Jesus' own definition here. How do we know this? Because Jesus says here that making disciples is comprised of two things, baptizing and teaching. We'll start with teaching. Throughout his ministry, Jesus taught and he commanded. He taught us what life is like in the coming kingdom. It looks like justice and peace and mercy. It looks like truth and love. And he said, this is what my kingdom looks like. Live like citizens of that kingdom. Therefore, part of making disciples is bringing others to Jesus to join in being hearers of that instruction. But as many of us know from the scripture and from experience, Jesus' instruction about kingdom life doesn't actually give us the power and the motivation to really and truly live into it. This is why Jesus talked about baptizing. Now, you and I, at this point, are going to be tempted to think really small thoughts about this baptism. It's just a water ceremony, we might say. And this is why we need to turn to the only other place in Matthew where Matthew mentions Jesus and baptism together. It's back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6. Pay attention to the language used that accompanies baptism. They were baptized by John in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Chapter 3, verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Chapter 3, verse 15. When John questions Jesus on why Jesus needs to be baptized, Matthew records Jesus' astonishing answer. I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You know, we could spend hours breaking this stuff down. But for now, suffice it to say that when Jesus says that disciples are made by baptizing, he's using baptism as a distilled way of speaking about our entire experience of the gospel. Confessing our sins. Repenting. Believing upon the Jesus who has fulfilled all the righteousness that we couldn't. Perhaps it's why Jesus begins with baptism and not teaching. Because the principle and ongoing work of a disciple is actually no work at all. It is to confess, to repent, and believe the gospel over and over again. It's what the Bible calls faith. To be a disciple is to be a hearer of Christ. To make disciples is to make other hearers of Christ. Now, what does it look like for a whole church, Cathedral Church of the Advent, to be a a disciple-making church, to be armed by God to make disciples? Someone somewhere illustrated it well by this. There are two kinds of churches out there, cruise ship churches, and battleship churches. A cruise ship church is a place where a large group of people pay a bunch of money for a select group of people on board to do the work. On a cruise ship, there are the guests who pay for goods and services. 
And there is the staff whose mission it is to serve those guests. A battleship, especially for those of you that have served in the military, is very different. On a battleship, every person on board recognizes that they exist to serve the ship's mission. That if they don't do their job, the ship will not succeed and the mission will fail. Everyone from the captain to the cook to the person swabbing the deck to the technician in the engine room, everyone serves the mission. Jesus is teaching us here that disciple-making churches are battleship churches. Every disciple is making disciples. Everyone rows together in the same direction to serve the mission. So what I just said is usually the more obvious part of the passage, but I'll tell you that there's more that we might easily miss as we look at the scriptures today. Power-packed realities in and around this great commission. And I'm going to focus on two of these realities. First, Jesus gave his great commission, not only to the disciples who were locked and loaded to receive it. He gave it to the doubters and to the skeptics. Look at verses 16 and 17, which we often gloss over as we're preparing to hear Jesus' amazing proclamation in the Great Commission. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And just as an aside, the previous context kind of indicates that there were many more disciples than just the 11 that went and heard what Jesus said this day. They went to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And listen to this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted? This is the risen Lord, the God of the universe, the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity. And some doubted? Hey, this is actually good news. Good news for disciple makers like you and like me. It means that as we go about our lives making disciples, some will doubt if Jesus had doubters, this is Jesus, so will you. And not only is this good news for the disciple maker, it's good news for the doubter. Jesus welcomes the doubter. It's not like you said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Some of you are still doubting. Okay, okay, hang on a second. Doubters, y'all can get to step in because I've got a great commission here. And I'm about to say something that churches in the future will base their whole mission and identity on. They're going to write books and come up with Bible studies, even make cute slogans, bumper stickers, memes, and such, all that stuff. I'm about to say something really important, doubters. You guys need to leave. You're not allowed. No. Some worshiped. Some doubted. And Jesus comes and says, all authority has been given to me. Come, dedicated disciples and doubters alike. Come to me. Station yourself before me and hear my word to you. Maybe you're headed off to college soon. Or maybe you're coming back from your first year or two. And you're nervous that the certainty of your faith is eroding or will erode. You're starting to doubt. Jesus, here and now, is speaking to you. If Jesus was comfortable before he left this earth, addressing the dedicated and the doubters alike, he's comfortable right here through his Holy Spirit addressing you. And he says today, have no fear. 
follow me. I can handle your doubt. So Jesus gave his great commission to doubters. But secondly, Jesus gave his great commission in the context of worship. Did you see it? When they saw him, they worshiped him. The disciples stood in awe of him. They marveled. They said, whoa, this takes my breath away. God made flesh, scars in his hands, the crucified and risen one. Preacher Tim Keller said it best in a sermon. Worship begins when knowledge about God spills over from head to heart. Worship is that moment when our minds realize that we can't contain God in our loftiest of thoughts. It's like filling up a balloon with water, more truth and more truth about the grandeur and power, love and greatness of God. Eventually, it's going to pop. And when it does, it explodes in worship. Jesus, I love you. I adore you. To you be all the glory honor, praise, majesty, power, and wisdom, and might. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Have you ever experienced that? That overflowing, mind-blowing moment where you have to just stop thinking, where you have to cease analyzing, and all you can do is go, wow, this is that moment. And as people are adoring, Jesus says, go and make other adorers. And then, and then, don't miss Jesus' last statement, for it is none other than a call to worship. He says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Behold isn't some word, you know, some random word like, hey, check it out. It's a word that often gets used in Scripture to mean marvel, wonder, worship. And what is it that Jesus is asking us to behold? Now, this is truly amazing. Behold, I am with you forever. And here, Matthew bookends his entire gospel. For what did Matthew point out Jesus was called back in chapter 1? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's interesting that Matthew's gospel doesn't record the ascension. I believe Matthew did this because he wanted to punctuate this truth. Jesus is with us. He wanted us to begin his gospel worshiping and end his gospel worshiping. And what precisely is this withness? What of Jesus is irrevocably, irreversibly with us by the power of his spirit? It is none other than his saving work of life and death. Jesus sent his very spirit as a seal and a guarantee of his death and resurrection, and his spirit resides, church, in you. And it was this very death and this very resurrection that would have been stunning the minds of the disciples that day as Jesus offered the Great Commission. And so, disciples of Christ, let us go forth rehearsing and remembering these dazzling truths. Just how long 
did Jesus hang upon that cross? The scientific and the mathematical answer is six hours. But for the one who beholds Jesus, for the disciple who is looking adoringly at Jesus, the answer is Jesus hung upon the cross until every last one of my sins was paid for. All glory be to Jesus alone. What held Jesus on that cross? Again, the scientific answer is three nails. For the disciple, for the one who beholds Jesus, the answer is Jesus was held upon the cross by two things. My sin and his love, which was greater than my sin. Praise be to God for his unspeakable gift. And just as powerful as this, when Jesus rose from the dead, what did that resurrection secure for us? It sealed the case that all authority has been given to Jesus and ain't no grave could hold him down. The devil was counting on Jesus' death, but he wasn't prepared for the resurrection. And yet not only did the resurrection seal the authority of Jesus, it's secured for us, for you, and for me. Everything that was accomplished on that cross and in his life. It's secured for us that who Jesus is and what he has done would be with us always, even to the end of the age. It's secured for us that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor anything to come, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Disciples of Jesus, what a guarantee. That means that wherever you go, you're free to make disciples succeeding or failing because nothing is on the line in your relationship with God. Jesus is with you. Period. Amen.